You follow as I read, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Uh, Guys, uh, we continue our study of the book of Ephesians, and um, as I said to you last week, I am restraining myself by restricting myself to two Two sermons per chapter out of the book of Ephesians. Um, When you read the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, I think you will see there are all kinds of options from which you could pick uh, a sermon subject or a sermon topic because of the the rich concepts and truths that are found in in chapter 1. Now, as I said last week, I've already said this, but this is one Greek sentence. Beginning at verse 3 through verse 14 is one Greek sentence. Now, I know that you have punctuation in your Bibles, but that has been inserted by the publishers of of the Bible to help us uh, understand it as we read it. All of that punctuation in there does not exist in the originals, but it's in there so that the flow of that sentence will make more sense to us. And and very frankly, it is, I, I think, rather helpful. But the, the second sentence, or actually, uh, if, you, if you forget verses 1 and 2, the second sentence in uh, Ephesians 1 starts at verse 15. And from verse 15 to the end of the chapter is a prayer. And I hate to skip it. <laughs> but there, there is another prayer included in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. And so when we get to chapter 3, we'll, we'll cover... Uh, we'll, we'll get a chance to peer into the prayer life of the Apostle Paul in chapter 3. But this morning, um, going back to verses 3 through 14, I, I've chosen to go in another direction. We're going to skip that prayer uh, in our study of the book of Ephesians, and we'll go to chapter 2 next week. But, um, but when you come to verses 3 through 14... I, I hope you're, it, it's impossible for you as, it, as well as me, as well as I, to, um, to not be impacted but with some of the stuff that's being said in there. 
These are profound, mighty, uh, far-reaching theological concepts and theological truths. And, and I've chosen one of them uh, out of those verses. I've chosen one of them because I, I think it will um, be of greater comfort to you. Now, let me, let me tell you what I mean by greater comfort to you. Guys, um, I, I want to pose a question this morning and I want to address it and try to answer it. Here's the question. Can a Christian lose his or her salvation? Um, gang, do you realize the, the widespread disagreement over the answer to that question among Christians? It, it's probably one of the most perplexing questions that Christians ask. And and I can tell you that they're asking it uh, doesn't arise from their wonderful interest in theological precision. They ask it because there is an angst in their souls. An angst that that, uh, most frequently shows up at night. When, um, when they're reviewing the day or they're reviewing the situation or they're reviewing something that they did or something that they uh, said and, 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 and this, these little voices seem to come out of nowhere and, and suggest things like this. Ha! You call yourself a Christian. Why? What gives you the right to think that you're a child of God? And so as a result of the angst created, and, and for some, it's just a lifelong angst. Um, they ask this question. Can I lose what I think is my salvation? Now, guys, uh, part of that one long sentence, verses 3 through 14... Has a part, it has a part in that one long sentence that addresses, and I think addresses fairly clearly, that issue. It's, it's, it's in the text. So I want to look at it with you, and, and hopefully it will be helpful. Um, some of the stress that, that uh, is associated with a question like that, I'm hoping to reduce some of that stress that, uh, that the people of God seem to invariably deal with and sometimes for a long time so let's let's see if we can unravel some of it guys while while your bibles are still open let me draw your attention to um this much really verses 13 and 14 um although the first time he is mentioned by name is really verse 13 the holy spirit's work is assumed throughout this entire section God is, is active in the lives of his people through the Holy Spirit of God. And in this text, the Holy Spirit is called three things. He's called a promise. 
He's called a seal and he's called a guarantee. If you didn't see it, look at it again. It's in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, believe, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Three things are said about the Holy Spirit, and it's those last two that, um, that I think speak very clearly about that issue that I posed a moment ago, that being, can a Christian lose his salvation? The fact that the Holy Spirit is a seal and that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. So let's, uh, let's um, answer the question. First of all, let me lay my cards on the table. You're safe. Um, can a Christian lose his salvation? My answer to that question is no. Um, the text that I love to, um, to use as a, as a proof of that is found in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 which says... For he who hath begun the good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is, if God has begun a work in you, ladies and gentlemen, God never does a half of a work. If he has begun a good work in you, he will perfect it. He will complete it. He will finish it. He doesn't make a half of a mountain. He doesn't make a half of a a, um, orangutan. And he doesn't make a half of a Christian. He doesn't start the project and then get distracted and never finish it. But one of the other places that gives me cause to hold on to the position that I have is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Um, Where we are told that after believing, that is, after you trusted in Christ, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is spragos, and it's used a lot in the Greek language. Uh, it, has, it has various usages, but um, all of them pretty much can be summarized like this. That it, the spragos is a mark of ownership. A spragos was put on cattle. A spragos, from time to time, was put on a slave. To indicate the owner of this object. And then we come to the other term, or another term that is mentioned in this text, is the term guarantee. Now guys, we, most of us know what, what that word means. A guarantee of some kind of future outcome. A, a guarantee of some kind of future security. It's a... Um, it, 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 some of your translations use the word down payment. In fact, if in, in my Bible, in the margins, it says that the word can be translated down payment, and it can. It's, a, it's an installment. It's a deposit. It's a down payment. It's a pledge. All language of commerce. So God makes a promise, seals it with the Holy Spirit, who is his down payment? <laughs> a down payment 
then I'll give you the rest later. The Holy Spirit is a promise who seals and is a down payment. You know, guys, when the Apostle Paul goes out of his way to multiply images like that, promise, seal, down payment, guarantee, when he goes out of his way to multiply words like that, it's because, it's because he's communicating something and trying to do it clearly. It's the down payment that makes the contract valid. And in this case, and in God's case, it's the down payment, the guarantee that makes the outcome a certainty. If God makes a down payment and combines it with the promissory note that he will pay the rest, that is, um, he will make all of the necessary payments then I am safe. Now, gang, gang, that that is a a brief exposition of verses 13 and 14. But I think a good way to teach this, this whole issue would be to face some of the questions that arise as a result of this conversation. As a result of this debate, questions kind of come pouring out. And so it seems to me that a good way to teach what I say is Paul is teaching in verses 13 and 14 is to face some of those questions and answer those and see if that won't eliminate this from ever troubling you ever again. So, first of all, you ask, okay, Jimmy, um, what about my responsibility to pay some of the debt? Now, guys, once that question is asked, the fears begin. The idea that I need to pay some of this debt. Well, then how much? And have I paid enough? And, uh, you know, was it, was it good enough? And yada, 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 yada. What about my responsibility to pay for some of this debt? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, listen. When it comes to your redemption, a word that he uses often in this sentence, when it comes to your salvation, you can't pay any of the debt. And that's why we call the gospel good news. Guys, we are debtors who cannot pay. We're bankrupt. Even your faith does not contribute to the payment of the debt. Gang, there are numerous stories in the Old Testament and in the New Testament trying to communicate this very thing. Let me me tell you about one of them. It's a, it's a little vignette out of the life of um, Elisha the prophet. It's in 2 Kings chapter 4. And uh, there's this widow. And this widow has two sons. And she, uh, she comes to Elisha and she's just brokenhearted. And she says to Elisha, you know, the creditors are about to come take my two sons away because I can't pay the debt. 
as a payment for the debt, they're going to take my two sons because I can't pay the debt. And she's bankrupt. She's got a debt. She can't pay. And she's about to lose big time. And so what happens? God provides all this oil and and uh, go get all these vessels and, and you pour that oil in all these vessels and then you go sell the oil and then you pay your debt. And she pays her debt by something that God provided. Guys, the point of the story is the thing that I'm trying to say right now. You can't pay, we can't pay any of the debt. Our confidence that we will ultimately be be saved rests not in our ability to pay or not in our ability to just hang in there. The only confidence is God's promise that he through Jesus Christ has paid the debt. Once you depart from that gospel truth, Your fears will overwhelm you. You know, guys, we sing a song in the Christian church. You know, I I don't know what you're doing out there when we're singing. Maybe you're watching the folks, you know, perform up here. Maybe you're not singing. Maybe you're not thinking when you're singing. Maybe you're making your grocery list while you're singing. Maybe you're half asleep while you're singing. I don't know. But we do sing the song. And the song goes like this. Jesus paid a whole lot of it. Jesus paid most of it. No, ladies and gentlemen, that's not what we sing. What we sing is Jesus paid it all. So stop all this nonsense about what part do I need to pay? Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, if you did need to pay, you'd be in big trouble. But the debt has, through Christ, been paid in full. Secondly, well, you know, uh, Dr. Young, you know what, 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 what troubles me in this whole uh, discussion is it just seems to me very arrogant to say something like, um, I will never fall away. I mean, it just, that's just a little arrogant, don't you think, of saying, I will never fall away. Well, it depends. It depends on how you say it. I mean, that is, if your emphasis is on the I like, like Peter, remember Peter, the apostle guy, uh, Peter, when he said, um, you know, Jesus, the, <laughs> the rest of these guys, they're going to, they're going to turn their back on you. But, but, but I won't, not me, they might, but I won't. If you're saying it like that, then let, yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is an arrogant thing to say. But ladies and gentlemen, do you see how performance has crept back into that whole idea? Guys, no, it's not an arrogant thing to say. If you understand that the reason that you won't fall away 
is because God has made a commitment to you to finish the deal. No, no, it's not arrogant. In fact, it's one of the most humble things that I can say. I'm not going to fall away. Not because of my, you know, uh, very strong grasp of the, his work. No. But because of his strong grasp of me. You know, guys, I, I don't, I'm not trying to impress you with my great solo voice, but we sing another song. And we say this. Oh, love that will not let me go. That's saying what I'm saying. The reason that I won't fall away is that I'm loved by one who refuses to let me go. He ought to. (laughs) No question about that. But he refuses to do that. Because if he begins to work, he's going to complete it. Here's the third question, and this is a biggie, guys. People in this discussion say, well, you know, uh, I don't believe what you're saying there, Dr. Young, because I see lots of people who make a profession of faith and then they fall away. Why, uh, you know, I used to have a Sunday school teacher when I was, uh, when I was a teenager, and, and he's a nice man, a very nice man, and, uh, and he sang in the choir. And not only did he sing in the choir, but he, I mean, he was on all the committees at church. He's just a fine, fine man. He, he sang in the choir, he was, on, he was an officer of the church, and I mean, he was there every time the doors were open. But you know, his wife got cancer, and she died prematurely, and he turned his back on Jesus, and he walked away, and he's never been back. So don't you try to tell me that you can't fall away, because I've seen it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, you're making a very fundamental mistake. It's a mistake that comes out of a misunderstanding or maybe a failure to understand something that Jesus said in John chapter 8. You know the text. It's John chapter 8, verse 32. And Jesus says this, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. Truth gives its experience but my experience is never to give me my truth you shall know the truth and the truth will give rise to an experience it'll set you free but never am i to come to my knowledge of truth through my experiences no ladies and gentlemen it is truth that is supposed to help me interpret my experiences, not truth given to me by my experiences. I'm sure you're describing a true story about the Sunday school teacher whose wife died at an early age. But that doesn't change the truth, ladies and gentlemen, nor does it give me my truth. I'm supposed to know the truth, and the truth is supposed to set me free, but never the other way around. Truth gives an experience, but don't ever reverse those two. You know, another part of this whole discussion, a a part of the big confusion that exists in the South, uh, among evangelicals, um, in the Bible Belt, is that there's a sentence that floats around among us, and it's, well, it's a true sentence. 
Unfortunately, it's an abuse sentence, and you know the sentence. Here's the sentence. Once saved, always saved. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's a true sentence. Unfortunately, it has been abused so horribly that it's come to mean, or it's it's come to be understood like this. Well, I was baptized when I was eight. Uh, you know, I walked forward at the, at the revival when I was 11. I went through confirmation class when I was 14. And, 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 and now I'm a college student. And I can live any way I want to live. Because, as you know, once saved, always saved. That's why I don't ever use the sentence, ladies and gentlemen. I don't ever even use it. Because of the, of the incrustations that have gathered around it. I talk about eternal security, but I don't use that sentence. Guys, if you have it, you can't lose it because of the seal. If you lose it, you never had it because you were never sealed. But listen. The same Holy Spirit that seals you is the same Holy Spirit that sanctifies you and makes you a new creature. You know, a text that I love to point people to, you might want to write this down and look at it later, but it's in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, 1 John 2, 19, where, where John is talking about the Antichrist and then he, then he talks about the other antichrists with a little a, and they're plural. The antichrist, and then the antichrists. And he says this in verse 19. He says, and they went out from us. That is, the point of origin for those little a antichrists was the church. They went out from us. And then he goes on to say, but they were not of us. Because had they been of us, they would have remained with us. This is not John, this is Jimmy. Oh yeah, they were with us. They had all of the outward appearances as being one of us. They were with us. But they were not of us. Because had they been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out to prove that they were never really of us. Guys, being with us doesn't mean that you are of us. You know what that means, don't you, ladies and gentlemen? That means that that there might be some people here who are with us right now who have outward appearances and nothing more. But they are not of us. You know, of course, the, the best illustration of that is Judas. Uh, Judas, who had all the outward appearances. He was a part of the apostolic band. He was even the treasurer. And then Judas betrays Jesus and goes out and hangs himself. And so what does Jesus say about him? Oh, that is such a shame of that poor boy. I mean, I mean he, was, he was doing so good until right there at the last minute. And then he succumbed. 
Jesus didn't say that, ladies and gentlemen. Here's what Jesus said. He said it in John 6. About Judas, Jesus said this. He was a devil from the beginning. Uh, Which brings me to my fourth point, and uh, it really is kind of a case study. Then, okay, then Jimmy, if that's true of Judas, um, um, what, what about Peter? I mean, Peter... He does virtually the same thing that Judas did. I mean, he denies Christ with oaths and cursings and swearings. And and what's the difference between um, um, between him and Judas? I mean, not only did he swear one time, he swore three times. And even after Jesus had warned him, he goes to the courtyard and this little servant girl says, Hey, 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 aren't you one of them? And he says, blankety, blank, 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 no. So what's the difference? Well, the difference, ladies and gentlemen, is, is uh, outlined for you in, in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But now, Peter, listen up. If you turn back and you come back to me and tell me you're sorry, then everything will be fine. <laughs> Again, Jesus didn't say that. What Jesus says is this, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Jesus, Jesus prayed. He goes to his father and he says, Now, Father, if you take your eyes off of Jimmy Young for one second, he's a goner. And you know that, Father. He will will look like there's not one shred of grace in his entire body. But, Father, you can't let him go. Because he's one of mine. You gave him to me. My mark is on him. We've sealed him. We've started a work in him. That we must complete. Here's the fifth question that I think troubles God's people. Does that mean, Jimmy, what you're you're teaching, does that mean that I will never disappoint him? That um, That I will never fall? That I will never deny him? No, doesn't mean any of that. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the question is not, can a Christian fall? The question is, can a Christian fall totally and finally? The answer is no. Oh, Christians can fall seriously. Oh, yeah. Uh, The best example, I guess, is David, Peter. But there's no sin, ladies and gentlemen, that we cannot commit. You understand that? There's nothing that you and I can't do. You know, I, I love to I love to say this. I say it all the time, but... Um, 
I say to this congregation, I say, listen, if you're worried about your preacher, you ought to be. But I can tell you there are two sins that you don't have to worry about. Homosexuality and anorexia. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure about those two either. There's nothing I couldn't do. But the question is, can you and I commit that and stay in it impenitently? No. No, we can't. I guess the great illustration of that is, besides Peter, is David. Who we know that he was in his sin for at least nine months, which is the normal gestation period. How long can you stay in it? I don't know. But can you stay in it forever? Impenitently. If you do, it means you were never sealed. But can you fail seriously? Oh, you bet you can. We can. But the proof, the evidence that we are real, that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, is that somewhere in the course of our dealing with our own sin, we cannot stand it any longer. And this indwelling Holy Spirit who has sealed our souls begins to convict us of our sin and drive us penitently back to the Savior that we love. So, my friends, if you're a saved man today, if you're a saved man today, you'll be a saved man tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, all the way into eternity. How do I know that? Because God has begun a good work in you and he has sealed you by the Holy Spirit of God which is a promise that he'll perfect you to the end. The real question for some of you is, am I a saved man today? If you're not, you can change that before you leave this room.
Our Father, once again, we thank you for your word that um, is ultimately the final arbiter of the truth. It's not this church. It's not our elders. It's not the pastor. It's not the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's, it's your word. And so, Lord, uh, if it has been handled rightly this morning, if your word has been handled rightly this morning, would you, would you bless it to the application and encouragement and, and peace of the souls of your people? If I have mangled it in any way, O oh God, would you, would you stop up the ears of the hearers? But then also, Father, for those that you may have brought here today who have not yet met this Savior of ours, who are still on the outside looking in, but who, who have some outward appearances that all is well with their, with their souls, when in fact it is not, would you cause them to see that at this moment they may be with us, but they are not of us. And by the power of your Spirit, convince them of that and then draw them to the beauty of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And of course, we pray in his name.